0: This is the Thoughts From a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Today, I am interviewing Philip Denery about the Appalachian Trail. Philip teaches courses on the built environment at the University of Michigan. He worked in public radio journalism and state government before earning a Ph.D. in urban and regional planning at Michigan. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you.
0: Welcome, Philip. How are you today?
1: I am well, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, I'm so glad to have you, and I'm really excited to talk about The Appalachian Trail. It was just such a fascinating read for me.
1: Great. That's good to hear.
0: Well, why don't we start out with you just telling us a little bit about it? I've read it, but for those that haven't read it yet, it's always nice to have a kind of summary of what the book's about.
1: Sure. Uh, The book is, in a nutshell, A History of the Appalachian Trail, but it's told from the perspective of one individual per chapter. So what I'm trying to do is tell folks the story of this trail from the perspective of the people who built it and why and how they got involved in it the way that they did. So each chapter is a biography of a different individual. And we sort of get the arc of their life's story and how it intersected with the trail's story. And then over the course of the nine chapters, then we move from The mid 1800s, before there was even any mention of an Appalachian Trail, up until uh, the end of the 20th century.
0: How did you decide on that format? As I was reading, I was kind of curious. I mean, it's an interesting way to do it, and I liked the way it was organized, but I was just curious how you came to that.
1: The book is formatted that way for two reasons. The first is that I wanted to convey the story of this place as a people built place. It's, it's a natural wonder and we go to trails to get closer to nature and wilderness and whatnot. We don't often think of them as places that had to be protected, built, managed, planned, all of those things. Those are things that are done by people for the different reasons that people have. And so I thought if I told the story of these individuals and their own life stories, and how it intersected with the trail, we would really get a perspective on the trail that was people focused, which was what I was most interested in. The other part of it is that, to be honest, it just seemed like a manageable way to tackle the story. I'm a big fan of biography. I learn a lot from reading biography, not just about individuals, but about history and the times that those people were a part of. And so it was attractive to me as frankly, as a way to get the story told.
0: We usually go west and go to Colorado and various places like that and hike out there. So, you know, I haven't been on it and now I'd really like to after reading your book. But it made me think as soon as I started reading about it, I was like, it's definitely people focused because it's really not so much a natural wonder as a man-made path through a bunch of natural wonders.
1: Yeah, that's true. I I think that's actually true of virtually all paths and trails. Unless you're walking on you know, a trail that an animal created, like a bear trail across the ridgeline, they are always human-built creations. We, we just don't like to think of them that way ordinarily because the reason that we're there is for the access to nature that they give us. But it is especially true of the AT that it was built where it was and the reasoning behind it was because it was so close to the major cities of the Eastern Seaboard. And the the inventor of the idea, Benton Mackay, his overall goal was to give people a different perspective on their urban industrial lives by giving them a way to get up into the mountains and away from that life. And so the fact that it was so close to cities and population and the eastern megalopolis was was an intentional feature of it. And so, yeah, because it's moving through areas that had long been settled by natives and after natives by so-called mountain people and then timber companies and so on, it, it is a very occupied and used landscape and always has been that facet of the landscape is a part of its identity at the same time as the natural wonders of, you know, the vistas and the views and the trees are.
0: It's very different than, say, Rocky Mountain National Park, where it's one park and the paths are made by humans going up the mountains, but you're staying within one park and one area versus the trail, which starts in Maine and heads all the way to Georgia, crosses through so many different things. And now it sounds like it's protected, but for many, many years, wasn't even necessarily completely connected. It's shifted and it goes through so many different areas.
1: It's a unique type of park within the National Park Service. It's a unique landscape. It's, it's a unique setup. And I totally agree with you. It's entirely different from taking a contiguous piece of the landscape like Rocky Mountain National Park and saying, well, okay, here's where we'll put the trails to provide people you know, a pleasant place to walk. This was from the start and has always been an attempt to knit together a very narrow and very, very long space that traverses all kinds of different landscapes.
0: It's kind of mind boggling that somebody had that idea originally. And I just thought it was so interesting reading your book to see how it kind of changed over time, but also the entire time there's this struggle between a nature walk and connecting Maine to Georgia, and then also a kind of true hiker's path, get out into nature, and also the ability for people to come and day hike. I mean, it seemed like there were just these kind of struggles the entire time.
1: Yeah, and I think those struggles over what the trail is and who it's for have continued to the present day. It's There's lots of different aspirations and ideals that people have and bring to the trail. And what we have today is the sort of composite or collection of all of those merged into to one thing. The clearest distinction in the trail's history is between Benton Mackay, who came up with the idea for the trail, and then his successor and rival as the leader of the trail effort, Myron Avery. And Benton Mackay was really committed to a vision of protecting the landscape and creating an alternative way of life that people could visit up in the mountains. And the trail was only there as a way to connect these different settlements. It was meant to be sort of the backbone or the skeleton for a much larger protected environment. He cared about the communities and the opportunities up there on the ridgetops. And he figured, well, we'll eventually get it connected, but connecting point A to point B uh, between Maine and Georgia was not his top priority. Myron Avery comes along and says, well, the heck with all that, Uh, Avery called it fireside philosophy, I want to build a connected trail that runs for 2,000 miles. We're going to drop all the other hoo-ha, and we're going to get volunteers out there, and we're going to cut down trees, and we are going to blaze this path. And that's what, in fact, happened.
0: We go to Rocky Mountain every summer and have for like 15 years. And so sometimes we go in June, and sometimes we go in August, and it really depends. But when we go in June, so many of the trails aren't cleared. And I just kept thinking, oh, my gosh, first of all, trying to clear that amount of land, but also to maintain it. I mean, that's an incredibly long amount of land to maintain and bathrooms and trash cans and just all of that. I mean, even though you don't want to think about trash cans on nature trails, they do have to be there at some point.
1: Yeah, and all of that work is done and almost exclusively has been done by volunteers for the entirety of the AT's history. So the, the article that proposed the AT was published in 1921, and the first version of the trail was completed in 1937. There was some work done in, on the early trail by the Civilian Conservation Corps, a, a Depression era agency that put workers out there to clear trail. But by and large, the AT is a volunteer-driven, volunteer-organized effort. And yeah, trails don't just keep themselves clear. There are blowdowns that have to be cut out. Uh, there are sometimes you know materials that have to be put down to keep erosion under control. There are stair steps that have to be built. It takes a ton of work. And that's all done by local clubs, organized and staffed by volunteers. It's a pretty impressive effort.
0: It's very impressive. And the other thing you touch on a little bit is as it became more popular, it you know draws in more people. And I know we've seen that again in Rocky Mountain. Attendance in national parks has become much more prevalent in the last five to seven years. Numbers have boomed. And you end up with all of these people who don't understand the rules and regulations in the park and they don't wanna stay on the trail and they don't care about the tundra or grass or whatever it is needing to be protected by the trails. So you just think there's all of that too, the damage associated with those people that you're having to now repair.
1: Yeah, it's it's the classic challenge of any protected park environment. You're protecting it in order that people can experience it. But too many people experiencing it and or not following the rules and regulations means degradation of the thing that you're trying to protect. And that's the tension that animates big national parks, small local parks, trails like the AT. Uh, and there's no one simple answer to how to do that. But it's definitely the case that people looking for unique experiences, especially for their social media feeds, are getting out to the outdoors To a degree that they didn't before and what used to be you know a really cool spot that only a handful of people knew about because they were very active in the scene well now those cool spots show up on instagram and everybody knows them and everybody wants to get their own picture at that spot and it's become a real management challenge
0: well and you talk a little bit about the booming and the hike through too that that wasn't really originally a thing where somebody would start in georgia and head to maine or start in maine and head to georgia But then after several different things happened, then that becomes more prevalent, and then more people are wanting to do this idea of hike-through, and then now with social media, record it for everyone else to see.
1: Yeah, and, and, and through hiking, numbers have gone up over the past several years. It's a fascinating thing, this idea of separating from society and getting on this path that goes and goes and goes. And, and you know, really taking on a different identity or, you know, an extended vacation from life. And that that captivates any number of people, myself included, although I've never attempted and never will attempt a thru-hike. So that, that aspect of the AT really calls a lot of attention to itself, which is great, but it sometimes distorts the reality of the trail because so many people, when they hear about it, they instantly think of the thru-hike. Well, in fact, through hikers are a tiny percentage of the users of the AT. And it was never built to be a through hiking venue. It was built to provide a hiking trail accessible to people no matter where they were in the eastern U.S., you know, within a a half day's drive. So through hiking is cool and wonderful, but it's not what the AT was built for.
0: I agree with that completely. I can't even fathom wanting to through hike. And I also feel like with Wild, when it came out about the Pacific Coast Trail, I think it sort of gets in people's imaginations.
1: Yeah. And, and again, it's, I, I, I joked with somebody. I said, you know, this, this book is not for through hikers. It's for people who have once thought maybe I would want to do that. And the, the woman said, well, boy, that sounds like every guy that I've ever dated. And I, so this idea of, of the through hike is, I think, appealing to a lot of people and to some very hardy, very committed people. It's something that they're able to realize for themselves. And it's a life transforming thing. It's, it's incredible. And, and I'm glad that the AT provides that opportunity, but people shouldn't be under the misunderstanding that it's there exclusively for through hikers or that you don't belong on it or shouldn't take a chance to go for a short hike on it if you happen to be near it.
0: Right. No, I agree completely. There are many people who can use it in many ways and different people view it differently and and why it was created or what it should be used for.
1: Yeah. And that to me is ultimately what the book is about, that it's this one place, it's this narrow trail that in most places is just a pretty ordinary path through the woods. But yet, so many different people from so many different walks of life are attracted to it for different reasons over time. And in the end, what I hope the book is about is how we craft nature for ourselves, the different priorities we bring to it, the different ideals we bring to it. That's ultimately what I'm after in the book is how this, how all of us thinking and acting on our own preferences and aspirations creates these, these places uh, for ourselves, and that's that intersection of humans building in response to their needs, and then the natural world as it otherwise is, that combination I find really interesting.
0: The two things that really surprised me were that one, that the trail hasn't remained static, that it has actually moved a fair amount, and you talk about it different times why, and then the other is that it isn't all in the woods. I had no idea that it runs alongside highways and things. I mean, it makes perfect sense that it would for the length that it is, but it was just something I wasn't familiar with at all.
1: Yeah. The only thing that has maintained, uh, that has been constantly maintained from the start is that it runs from Maine to Georgia. But how you get from Maine to Georgia has had to shift and change several times over the years. The building of parkways by the National Park Service through Shenandoah National Park and Great Smoky Mountains National Park meant that the trail had to move. The post-World War II development of vacation properties and ski resorts on mountaintops meant that the trail had to move. So this army of volunteers is all the time saying, uh, well, okay, the trail you know can't be here. It's got to be over there. And so it, it has to shift and change. It's still the AT, but the physical location of it shifts. I should say that it doesn't shift that much anymore because since the 1970s, the federal government has built a corridor to permanently protect the trail. So there might still be some reroutings in particular locations, you know, within the already protected areas, but it's now pretty much set on the map, the overall corridor that the AT runs through. And while there were years where a lot of the trail ran on roadsides because there was just no alternative, it got kicked off of some private property or it couldn't run in this location anymore, so we'll connect these two endpoints with a stretch of roadway, the success of that federal government effort means that there's very little road walking on the AT anymore, pretty much just when the trail needs to get across a river, and so it sort of piggybacks on a bridge shoulder. But for the most part now, the AT is off the roads. I should say the other time that the AT is on the roads is when it's running down the main street of Hanover, New Hampshire or some other small town. And that's, you know, so you you can be just, you know, walking down the street in one of these small towns and lo and behold, hey, I'm on the Appalachian Trail.
0: I just didn't know that. So that was kind of fascinating to me. I had no idea that it wasn't just in the woods the entire time. And I will say my most familiarity with the AT is A Walk in the Woods by Bill Bryson, who I'm a huge fan of, and I love that book. But I haven't read it since it came out, so it's been a very long time.
1: And in that way, you are like the vast majority of people that I've come into contact with. You know, that book was so popular and and such a fun read, and he's such a good writer that for a lot of folks, if you mention the Appalachian Trail, the very first thing you hear from them is Bill Bryson and A Walk in the Woods.
0: I think that's right. And I've never seen the movie because I knew the reviews were sort of tepid and I just loved the book. And sometimes I'd rather just leave it that way. But it was interesting to me because one thing I didn't know till I read your book was that his companion, his you know friend on the trip with him was really more a composite. He had kind of altered the way that that man was while they were on I had no idea.
1: Yeah, I think what the way that Bryson would describe it is he took one facet of the character that he calls Cats, and he zeroed in on that one facet because that made for a more entertaining narrative. And so it's not that he was creating anything out of whole cloth, but when he first characterized his friend in the way that his friend really was during their hike together on the EAT, The friend was seriously depressed and withdrawn and going through a lot of really miserable things in his life. And Bryson felt like it just killed the narrative. So he tried to figure out a way to keep his friend in the book and keep the aspect of his friend's behavior that fit with the story Bryson wanted to tell and leave a lot of the rest of the stuff out. And it took him writing, I think he told me 100 pages of a first draft of the book, before he basically balled it all up and threw it in the trash can and restarted with this different presentation of his friend.
0: Well, and you talk also that he originally thought he was going to hike the whole trail. And as he was hiking, and he was realizing as he hiked, he can't write 250 pages about just walking down a trail, that he had so had to reformat how he was going to write the story, because it would have definitely not been the same book at all.
1: Yeah, he realized that describing walking and pitching a tent and eating day after day after day wasn't going to make for a very good narrative. But the other thing that he was very candid about with me was that he discovered how much through hiking was not for him. He was miserably homesick and lonely. And that was what ultimately got the two of them off the trail. He said, I'm going to write a book about the AT and I'm going to structure it along a journey from Georgia to Maine but hiking the entirety of it was not going to work for him. Many of the reviewers, by the way, said, thank heavens he didn't narrate every step of through hiking the trail. (laughs) There are a number of wonderful, extraordinary books out there about through hiking itself. and Bryson felt like the best book that he could write would be about the trail, but it wouldn't be the blow-by-blow of a through hike. That wasn't going to work for him either as an individual on the trail Or as a writer.
0: Right. And I agree. I mean, I think what he wrote was fantastic, and it would not have been nearly the same if he had approached it from the other direction or the other idea, the theme that he had. Well, also, I was surprised, and I guess it makes sense, I just hadn't thought through it, that some people, some supporters, volunteers with the AT weren't so thrilled with that book.
1: Yeah, there were members of the Appalachian Trail community who wrote into the AT's newsletter and said, look, he is engaged, you know, Bryson is a very humorous writer, and a lot of his humor is making fun of people, almost always himself more than anybody else. But he did engage in some classic stereotypical humor towards southern backwoods people that really does not read as appropriate in this day and age. And it sure as heck didn't read as appropriate to the individuals who were being stereotyped, even when the book first came out so he he's he's a humorist and he goes for these broad laughs and there was a kind of humor towards rural southerners that was i guess more acceptable in the 1990s but clearly very offensive to a lot of people that really doesn't hold up as well and the other thing that frustrated people was you know within the community these are folks who spend hours doing trail labor they attend meetings they've They've done hike after hike. They're really committed to this place, and here's this guy who comes from out of nowhere and turns this place that they lovingly care for into, you know, this bestseller for the pop culture. They really felt like he didn't fully get it, um, and that was the the sentiment that these letter writers were voicing.
0: And that he also probably made it a tourist destination. So he brought in all sorts of people that might not necessarily appreciate the AT themselves, which then makes more work for these volunteers.
1: Absolutely. And there was a huge bump in AT usage in the first couple of years after the book came out in 1998.
0: Makes sense. It's like the precursor to what you were talking about earlier with the social media presence. At that time, when you wrote a book about someplace like that, you're going to get a, you know increased attendance, sort of like when these Instagrammers now go places and post pictures from different places. People want to then go and do the same thing.
1: Yeah. And it's it's really hard to overestimate how big an impact the book had. It was on the bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks the paperback was on the bestseller list for months and months and months and months you know you really couldn't go anywhere for a couple of years without encountering this book and so yeah it was a it was a pop culture sensation definitely
0: well are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me or are you just enjoying getting ready for the Appalachian Trail to come out into the world
1: uh, this is my first book so i am i'm learning about the book publication process as this comes out i'm beginning to poke around a topic for another book but i'm only at the the very earliest stages of it
0: well, that makes sense. And I think nonfiction is a little bit different than fiction in that stage. Anyway, most fiction writers are usually kind of one or two books ahead. But I think with nonfiction, it takes a lot to kind of get the idea, do all of the research, get everything checked. And also, you you know, it's your first book, and we're still at the tail end or I don't, in the midst of I'm not sure where we are in the pandemic and trying to figure all of that out, too, has got to be a little tricky.
1: Yeah, I actually feel in- incredibly fortunate that, you know, there, there's, there's writers that I love that had books land in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic and they just disappeared, you know, so, uh, this book coming out when it is, I'm, I'm thrilled about. And, uh, I've got, I'm eager to see how it goes. But again, because it's my first book, it's, it's, I'm enjoying the experience just to see how this whole process works.
0: A year later is a much better time to have a book coming out than last April, May, June, when everybody was scrambling and wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen and trying to figure out what to do in lieu of the standard author visits and everything. So definitely this, this time this year is much better than this time last year. For sure. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked.
1: Well, actually, it's funny we should be on this topic. One book that I read recently that I really liked uh, is called This is Chance by John Muallam. And it is a book that landed right in the heart of the beginning of the pandemic. It is the story of the great Alaska earthquake of the early 1960s. And it's told from the perspective of a a radio reporter who um, was on the air for hours and hours telling people and keeping people connected to one another through the earthquake. Um, And Muallam's a great writer. He frames it along the lines of, the Thornton Wilder play Our Town. So I, I just loved that book. It was, it was masterfully written and an interesting story. I just read, uh, Ben Folds' memoir, uh, the musician, uh, A Dream About Lightning Bugs, which is to me was as interesting for its, uh, looking into the creative process as it was as a rock and roll memoir. And the other thing I would mention, this is not a new book, but the Israeli writer Amos Oz, his uh, memoir is called, a Tale of Love and Darkness. And that instantly shot to my top 10 list of best books ever. It's just masterfully written and a fascinating life. And uh, it does everything I think a book should do.
0: Is this is chance? Is that is the town called Chance? I feel like I've heard about that book.
1: No, uh, Jeannie Chance was the name of this woman who was on the radio for okay. three days straight, pe- keeping people connected. Um, but they, but it actually takes place in Anchorage.
0: Okay. I, I remember when that book came out, but I was trying to remember exactly who Chance was because, you know, sometimes depending on how they name things, it's confusing. Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much, Philip, for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. I really enjoyed talking with you about the AT.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Philip's book can be purchased at the Conversations From a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time.